Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Jonah, the book of Jonah. This was a different one for me to study, but a fun one because it's Jonah. Now, there are a lot of... Um, false assumptions about the book of Jonah, unless you kind of take the time to give it a double look, you will think you're reading the story of Pinocchio, who also is eaten by a whale, or you're like, oh, I remember this. In high school, we read Moby Dick. Oh, this is so cool, all right? Like, Jonah spears the whale, right? By the way, there's not even a mention of a whale in the whole book of Jonah. It's actually called a fish. Hello, write that down. Note number one. Anyway, uh, as we get into the book of Jonah today, we want to clear the air, and what we've been doing just as kind of a a way to catch you up to speed here as we've been studying these minor prophets. There are 12 of them, and each of them contain their own context and major message. That's what we've been exploring each week, taking some time to know what's going on, to have an understanding of the background of each book. We did last week the book of Obadiah, for example, what's going on in Obadiah. But then also asking God to communicate to us what is the major message for our lives here and now in this moment. As we know, God's word is relevant. It's alive. It's active. It speaks into even our lives here today. And so the way that we've been doing this is we take some time here on the front end to do a little more academic scholarly work here to understand uh, what we're calling the prophet profile of every book. So here we are. We'll start here uh, now in Jonah with uh, our prophet profile. So let's get some background. What's going on in the book of Jonah, this minor prophet we want to mention each week too. Minor prophet doesn't mean lesser in its profundity. It just means smaller in its length. It's not like major league, minor league prophet, okay? So Jonah, the minor prophet, his name means dove. Doesn't, I don't know what that means symbolically. Have fun with that. I don't know, okay? But that's what his name means, Jonah. It tells us there in the first verse, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. His dad's name was Amittai, the son of Amittai. That's who uh, uh, the book actually describes uh, Jonah as, just this guy's son, Amittai's son. If it wasn't for 2 Kings chapter 14, you see up there, we wouldn't know anything else about him. But because of 2 Kings 14, we get some really interesting insight into Jonah's ministry as a prophet in the northern kingdom. Remember, there's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom because of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The kingdom splits. Uh, Israel gets divided. And in the northern kingdom... You have at this time, which is around, we estimate likely between 793 B.C., 758 B.C., around that time. You have another King Jeroboam, who's named after the first, named King Jeroboam II, who is a guy that is absolutely dominating according to every earthly political metric. At this time, Israel is at their zenith of prosperity. They're at their greatest point of political uh, spread and power, uh, the, the military prowess that they possess is, is unrivaled. Uh, so Jeroboam, again, I say this every week, he's a guy you would vote for in a lot of ways. You're like, he's killing it. Now, he's absolutely uh, leading the nation to bank materially, but he's led the nation to become bankrupt spiritually. He's introduced all sorts of foreign idols. He's moved the center of worship from Jerusalem to Bethel and introduced all these other gods. They haven't thrown away the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. They've just sort of created this syncretistic um, kind of like uh, catch-all buffet line of religion where you can kind of come and like, you know, pick your, pick your God today. You know, like, what do you need? You need some God of the Old Testament? Here he is, you know. Oh, you need some, um, you know, some Molech? There you go. It's kind of like this, like, uh, again, buffet line of idolatry. Jonah is a prophet at that time. And when you read 2 Kings chapter 14, you actually see that he's a national hero, hometown hero like Rudy. You remember, you ever seen that movie? That's Jonah for Israel, but not football, prophecy. Okay, Jonah is, is prophesying to Israel that they're going to see great days of success. This is interesting. It kind of messes up the, the kind of backwards theology we have that's just like, if you do good things, great things will happen all the time. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen. Right? That doesn't always work. That's why we have questions like, why do good things happen to bad people? 
right? Why do bad things happen to good people? That sort of confusion can come up. And, and, and Jonah is an example of uh, his ministry to Israel, how that's not always the case. Uh, life in Ecclesiastes, we, we studied that last week, speaks to that mystery of like, man, it doesn't always work like the Proverbs where you sow this and you get this. In, in this time, it was a time of just wickedness, of idolatry in Israel, and yet God through the prophet Jonah promised that uh, there's going to be, for the time being, judgment would come, there's going to be, for the time being, great prosperity. So Jonah's the guy, we don't know too much information, he's probably given like intel from God to Israel about the surrounding nations. Uh, that's likely what's speculated, that the, the reason why he's such a hero is it's through his ministry that they were able to provide adequate defense against nations like Assyria uh, and so forth. And so uh, Jonah, a national hero, it's because of God using this guy that the nation is just absolutely booming. Things are awesome, okay? That's what we know about him, and it's actually going to inform a lot of our story. Uh, the next thing we look at is the territory of the prophet. That's uh, to say, where does God send this prophet to fulfill his ministry? And Jonah, specifically, is the first in Israel's history that's sent as a missionary to a foreign nation. This is the first international mis missionary in history. Jonah is sent to a place, notice there in verse 1, or verse 2, Jonah is sent to Nineveh. It says there, the great city, the great city of Nineveh is Jonah's territory. Nineveh is not in Israel. It is the capital of Assyria. And notice it's called the great city. It's called that a few different times. Um, it's just, there's also something special here just about God's heart for cities, major cities, great cities. Uh, typically, if you look back on the church planning movements of history, you see a lot of, uh, for, for a time, especially in the 80s, kind of Christians retreating from the cities, like they're lepers, I don't want to catch their sin, and so like I'm going to go and kind of create my own little, you know, uh, almost like my Amish community for Jesus, all right, and we're going to kind of live in our little subcultures, but we see God is like, no, church, you're a light, you, got, you can't be a light unless you're in the darkness, so like go to the city. God, if you look all throughout the Bible, God loves cities. Not that he doesn't love the suburbs. Anybody else grow up in the suburbs? Hey, oh, suburbia, what's up? All right, now God, God loves the suburbs. But if you think about the city, Tim Keller explains this when he, he talks about how cities, they can contain the greatest amounts of density and diversity. So there's the most amount of people in a small area, and there's the most different kinds of people in major cities. Think like a New York City or a Miami, all right, or a Boca, all right? You know, um, the idea is when you look at a city, what you have is you have more representation of the Imago Dei, the image of God per square mile than anywhere else. And let me just say, God loves people. And when he sees cities, he sees a lot of people. And where we tend to run, God tends to send us. He goes, go there. Go bring my gospel there. So Jonah is sent to the great city of Nineveh. Now, before we get too much into his mission, we need to talk about where God is sending him. Before we throw a bunch of judgment and cast some shade on this guy, we need to, under, we need to kind of put ourselves in his sandals, so to speak, as it's been said in VBS. Okay? The great city of Nineveh. What's so great about this capital city of Assyria? Well, first you could say that it was great in size. That phrase great is, uh, is used as a characteristic of the city all throughout the book. It was great in size. It's about 300 miles long. It took about a three-day journey to get through. That's what it tells us in chapter 3. Jonah walks through the city, takes the guy three days. Nobody, trying to call Uber, his phone died. Couldn't do it, had to walk through it, all right? The second reason why it was great is it was great in number, with a population close to one million people. About one million people, a great city, great in size, great in population. It was also great in influence. Um, it's, at, a, at this time, people think that it's starting to diminish as a superpower, but it's the biggest city at that time known to man. It's massive. And as the capital of Assyria, it's, it has great influence on the other nations around it. Now, the last reason why the, na uh, the city of Nineveh was great is the most significant thing about it. Um, Nineveh was also great in wickedness. It's great in size, great in population, great in influence, and great in its depravity and wickedness and sin. Um, Nineveh is 
first of all, they are sort of the notorious enemy of Israel. But they are a notoriously cruel enemy of every nation. And if you study history, you find the Assyrians were some of the most messed up people when it came to war, when it came to their domination, than any other, um, any other people. Even in the, the, the book of Nahum, which we're going to study in a couple weeks, two weeks, this is what Nahum uh, says about uh, Nineveh, about Assyria. Woe to the bloody city. It's all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. So if you go to Nineveh and you're like, hey, or you go to Nahum, you're like, hey, Nahum, I've been looking on Zillow around like the Nineveh area. Like, just tell me, I know you've been living there for some time. Like, what do you think? Like, how's the city? Like, I found a nice 3-2. It's on the river and it's just beautiful. Tell me about the city. Like, is it a good place to raise your family? He's like, it's a bloody city. It's the first thing to know. It's full of lies and robbery. And the thing with the city is the victim never departs. A lot of victims in the city. So this is the nature of Nineveh. Now, I was contemplating how much of this to share, and I decided to share all of it. So uh, here is, this is just from the Holman Concise Bible Commentary. Here's a description about the wickedness, the great wickedness of uh, the people of Nineveh. Um, Dr. Clendence writes that they were known, the Ninevites, to impale their enemies on stakes in front of their own towns and hang their heads from trees in the king's gardens. They also tortured their captives, men, women, or children, by hacking off noses, ears, fingers, and gouging out their eyes and tearing off their lips and hands. They reportedly covered the city wall with the skins of their victims. Rebellious subjects would be massacred by the hundreds, sometimes burned at the stake, and then their skulls would be placed in great piles by the roadside as a warning to others. So, like, not the, your honeymoon spot, you know? Um, pretty grotesque and gruesome. By the way, good morning, happy Sunday, welcome to November in church, okay? So this is the nation... Of Assyria. This is the city of Nineveh. This is a wicked place. And this is what leads us back to our prophet profile. This is what leads us to, to Jonah's task. Jonah, think about it again. Jonah's a national hero in Israel. God has used him to sec- secure their defense against the surrounding nations. Uh, Nineveh, by every metric, is Jonah's worst enemy. We're talking like um, a member of ISIS to an American. Do we get this idea? All right, political, national enemy, a a, a representation of wicked and evil and violence. And Jonah is tasked by God there in verse 2. Read it with me. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This is really interesting language that the prophet uses here. Um, you know, the Bible says that our prayers, for example, are like incense, like righteousness. Are, it's a sacrifice of love that, 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 that goes up to God's own throne, and he enjoys that, you know. And it's poetic language. It's not like God's up in heaven. He's like, oh, I smell a prayer. It's not like literally like that. It just speaks of the sweetness of the aroma of someone who's walking in the purpose of Jesus and seeking him. And what a contrast to that. Now we have great wickedness that we might think, by the way, that God doesn't see. But the Bible says that everybody is open. Everybody's lives are open before the eyes of the Lord. God sees it. And Jonah says now there's a different stench, a different sight coming up before God, and it's the wickedness of this nation. There's nothing. There's no um, unrighteousness. There's no injustice that God doesn't see. And he sees it. And it comes up before him, and he says, I need to send Jonah to that city. So here's Jonah's task. Here's Jonah's task. Jonah's task as the first foreign missionary in Israel's history is to leave Israel and go to the nation of Nineveh. And God commands him to cry out against them on behalf of God for their wickedness and call them to repentance. That's his mission. The hardest part about this is, first of all, get up out of your comfortable, secure world and go to a place that's foreign and go there as a foreigner foreigner who is their political and national enemy. And I want you to go there and cry out 
against them, to cry out against their wickedness, the wicked things that they're doing. The idea there is to speak against it in such a way that they understand that God is going to judge them for their sin and then call them to turn from their sin and come back to God. That is Jonah's task. Now, the book of Jonah would be very short if Jonah just did what God called him to do. I'd probably close in prayer right now. In, in fact, when Jonah does get there, he eventually does get there. Takes some things. But in Jonah 3, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, his sermon is only eight English words long. Shortest sermon ever preached. You'd love this guy. Comes up here, good morning, eight words. Let's close. Let's go eat lunch. Okay, that's his message. The book would be short. But, as many of us are familiar with the story of Jonah, verse 3 says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, before we judge Jonah as the guy that runs from God, maybe now some context about where God was sending him might help us sympathize a little bit. There's a lot of reasons why we might understand Jonah going, like God's like, go do this, and Jonah's just like, no, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. Um, number one, I mean, what the, the best thing that's going to happen to me is they're going to mock me. The worst and most likely thing that's going to happen to me is I'm going to be another impaled skinned guy. I don't feel like that happening to me. So, no, now you actually get greater insight, not, not that there's only one reason, but there is a main reason that we're going to kind of hint at our major message, which I'm not going to give us to the end of the message today, but um, the main reason why Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh is because of the obvious, they are his national enemy. And Jonah knows that God, if they repent, God may forgive them. And I don't want God to love or forgive my enemies. I don't want God to use me as a vessel through which his love can get to my enemies. So God, no. You say go this way, but I am going to go to a town that I hate pronouncing, Tarshish, okay? Tarshish. Now check out this map. We're talking the complete opposite direction. It's not like, no, God, I'm just going to go you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I just want to go to Jerusalem, okay? God says, I want you to go as far east as we know you can go, territory of, of the Assyrians. And Jonah says, how about instead I take a boat from Joppa, Carnival Cruise Line my way to Tarshish, 2,500, how far can you be from God? You're 2,500 miles away from God's purpose for your life. At that time, many people think Tarshish represents modern-day Spain. It is the known ends of the earth. At that time, this represents Jonah's response to what God was calling him to do. Now, in Jonah's fleeing, look at chapter 1 again, verse 3. We get some insights into what's going on here. Jonah is running from God. In chapter 3, uh, we get some insights into what we'll talk about in regarding um, regarding sin and running from God. The first thing that we see here, write a few of these downs. In chapter 3, we see first the nature of, of what sin is. Sin, it's such an overused and underdefined word. And it can mean falling short of the glory of God. It can mean missing the mark. But, but really, when you look at the life of Jonah, you get such a clear depiction of what sin against God really is. And it's this, it's running from God. It's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is God says, I have this for your life. And you say, God, but I want this for my life. The nature of sin. Jonah flees. Uh, you also hear in verse 3, you see the effects of sin. The effect of sin. Jonah arose to flee, from, flee to Tarshish. Notice this. From the presence of the Lord. What, what's the effect on Jonah here in fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord? Jonah, Jonah knows Psalm 139. We know he knows the Psalms because when he's in the belly of the fish later, spoiler alert, okay, Jonah gets eaten by a fish. All right, sorry. All right, when Jonah gets swallowed 
by the fish, he starts praying the Psalms. We know Jonah knows the Psalms. We know that he knows Psalm 139. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. The first verse says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, this is the effects of sin. Sin will make you do stupid things. Sin will make you become blind to the things that you know are false. And it will just kind of lead you like almost a zombie just kind of caught up in this beam of direction. Here's Jonah. He knows that he can't flee from the presence of the Lord, but he's convinced that somehow he can. It's amazing the things that that rebellion against God can lead us to do, the folly that it can lead us into. Sin has this sort of blinding effect. We also see the nature of the cost of sin. So Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. um, and, And notice this, he went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. It says, so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah runs from God and now it's literally financially costing him. We don't know how much he had left in savings or not, but he paid the fare. This wasn't a cheap fare. This was an expensive trip to go from Joppa, 2,500 miles. Like, have you been on like JetBlue.com lately? Like, just to get a flight that far is a lot of money. And, and so Jonah is now literally paying the consequences of running from God, and that speaks to the cost of sin. It's always good to be reminded that there is a cost to follow Jesus, right? There is an expense, counting all things lost, to follow Jesus. There's a sacrifice. But there's also a cost to sin. Either way, the reason why we should count the cost of the direction of our lives is because whatever life direction you're on, whether it's following God or not, it's going to cost you. The idea, ultimately is that it will ultimately cost you more not to follow Jesus. It will ultimately cost you more not to follow him. In the end, with Jesus, you give up everything. You give up some things, I should say, and you gain everything. Um, And and we see the opposite here with Jonah. He's sacrificing everything, the cost of sin. He pays the fare. And then lastly, we also see in verse 3, we see the direction of sin. I think this is important Hebrew poetry. It tells us here that he went down to Joppa. Notice it mentions it again. He paid the fare, and then he went down into the ship. Do you see the direction of of Jonah's life? Anytime we are running from God, that's the nature of sin, there's a blinding effect. There's a costly consequence of running from God, and there is a direction of downward trending. It's a downward step, contrary to the call of God in our lives, which Paul says is upward. God is always calling us upward. Sin is always bringing us down. Maybe today you feel kind of down and out uh, because you've been doing your own thing your own way for so long and you just, it's just led you to take a step down, down like Jonah, down into the boat, down to this next step. And can I just tell you, all you got to do is look up. Just look up to a God who sent his son Jesus to come down to the lowest depth so that he could bring us up in him. That's what we see here. So here's the big summary already. Uh, we see through Jonah's life that sin is man running from God. That's sin. This is what we just went over. Sin. Man runs from God. Here's Jonah running from God. Grace, we're going to see now, is that God still pursues man. This is really interesting. This is what grace is. Sin is when I turn away from God and I go in my own direction. Grace is, notice this, it's not that God stands here and waits for me to come back. This is important. It's not that I have to now, with all that I've done, I have to pay my way back into his favor and love, but this is this great thing called grace. Grace is that when I'm running, God is running after me. Grace is when I'm fleeing from God, he's still pursuing me. And that's what we see in Jonah's life. We see great, undeserved grace. None of us in this room deserve God's pursuit of us. Yet he pursues us. Yet he loves us. Yet despite how we, by the way, we all run from God is the point here, right? We're we're not talking about Jonah. You know that, right? We're talking about me. We're talking about you. We're talking about our own proclivity to run from God in our own ways. Whether you're religious or not, to run from God. And yet God, despite our deserving of it, he pursues us in grace. We start to see God's grace pursue Jonah. 
verse 4 says, and we see the, the hint of this grace starting, it says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. So the first thing we see with Jonah, uh, running from God in God's grace, is we see grace gets our attention. That's what God's trying to do here. This is the first step of how grace comes to you. It comes to you in the form of leading you to see what God sees about your life. And so Jonah's running from God. God is pursuing Jonah. Jonah gets in the boat, and God says, great, I'm the guy who controls the winds and the waves. I need to do a little bit more for the surfers in South Florida. But I'm going to send a windstorm, and I'm going to cause the ship that Jonah's in to become so, um, so distraught and devastated that it's almost going to be broken up. It says in verse 5, this is God, by the way, trying to get Jonah's attention. You ever felt like God brought things into your life, storms of attention? You ever had that? You're like, oh, hey, God, okay, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Okay, I am now, all right? Well, that's what God's trying to do for Jonah. God is trying to get Jonah to see where his sin is taking him. By the way, that's mercy. That's not just judgment. That's mercy. For God to open our eyes to where our sin is bringing us and running from him, whatever it takes. In Jonah's case, it's an accident. It's this boating situation. In verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, the other people on the boat, and every man cried out to his God, and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. So after they have tried, they try here both um, pagan idolatry, so they try that. Okay, let's try to worship our gods. That doesn't work. Okay, let's try secularism. Let's try to fix it with uh, natural problems. Let's throw everything out. Nothing's working. So instead, it tells us this, but Jonah, I want you to notice this, he had gone down, tells us again, he's always going down, into the lowest parts of the ship, he had laid down, and he was fast asleep. Now what a great, by the way, foreshadow of the greater than Jonah, who would also be asleep in the storm with his disciples, but they're asleep for two different reasons. Okay, Jesus is asleep in the storm with his disciples because he's at perfect peace. He's not running from God, he's in the will of God, and part of being in the will of God is storms come. And he wants to teach his disciples a lesson about being at peace when everything around you is chaotic. Jonah's asleep in the storm because he's desensitized himself and become numbed in the things of God. He's sleeping. Everybody else is freaking out like we're going to die. Jonah knows the storm is from God. So, so look at this picture. God's trying to get his attention. And I've had this happen in my life for a long time. And even still, like, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, I ran from God. God, God got my attention and now here I am. No longer running. No, like all the time. You ever had that where you, you know that you're not really walking with the Lord and God is just so patient and gracious? Wake up. Wake up, you sleeper, you know? And sometimes I just keep my eyes closed and I turn that alarm off and I'm just like, no. And God's trying to get Jonah's attention through the calamity in his life. But he's sleeping. So the captain came to him, verse 6, just some more storytelling. Follow this with me. And said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. This guy had no idea who this sleeper was, so what was going on. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. Let's find out who actually put us in this mess. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. He's like, oh, this is awkward. Um, hey, guys. So verse 8 says, then they said to him, please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? What do you do for a living? And where do you come from? And where's your country? What people are you? Jonah, what's up, bro? Why is this storm going on? And Jonah said to him, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, at least on paper, okay, who made the sea and the dry land. I'm a Hebrew. I follow God. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew, notice this, they knew that this is a sad moment, right? When non-believers are looking on at a believer and they're like calling out the believer. We knew that you had fled from the presence of your God, from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Great word. Verse 12. And he said to them, now here's Jonah's apathy, right? This is where he is in spiritual numbness. He's asleep because he's spiritually dead inside. And now he's at the point of, of suicidal ideation. Like his own, by the way, this isn't the only solution. Now, it, it ends up resolving the issue, we're going to see. But Jonah could have said, well, I just need to repent and come back to God and everything will be fine. 
Because the way that you can fix this problem is, he says this, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. They're like, we're not going to kill you. I don't want that on our hands. So they're like, let's try to do it on our own. They, they rode hard to return to the land, but they couldn't. The scene continued to grow more tempestuous around them. Therefore, they cried out to God, and they're like, we, we pray, Lord, please don't perish. Let us perish for this man's life. We're going to throw him overboard, but please forgive us, okay? Do not charge us with innocent blood, O Lord, um, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and cannonball, they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, notice this, the non-believers come to the Lord. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So Jonah's continuing to spiral downward. He's gone down into the boat, paid the fare. Now he's down at the bottom of the boat sleeping. Now he's down into the deep blue sea, just going down, down, down. And the men that threw him overboard are now repentant and coming back to the Lord. But Jonah is still running from God, numb in his sin. And God is still, God is still pursuing him. It says, the Lord, here it is, verse 17, the verse we've been waiting for your whole life for this moment. Verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish, not a whale. In Hebrew, it's not a whale. It's a fish. Probably a whale. To swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, God is still pursuing Jonah, trying to get his attention. Now, Jonah's in the belly of a fish. Now, I don't want to waste too much time, just a little bit of time, but not too much time talking about this, okay? A um, lot of people, this is a stumbling block. And basically, to put this to rest, here's the stumbling block. How could a God of miracles do a miracle? That's really it, okay? So I have a few thoughts about this. Um, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, you'll be fine with the whole Bible. Okay, In the beginning, God created the whole world out of nothing. Okay, He created it, so that means he's powerful. He also is the creator, so he's not subject to the laws that he created. He's outside of it. He can, he can come in and bend that thing all he wants. You know what I'm saying? Defy those laws. Um, so he can do the miraculous. Let me say this too. If you struggle, like if you're very, you're like, I'm a naturalist, I'm a materialist, I don't believe in the supernatural and the miraculous, um, but I'm still a follower of Jesus. So I try to, it's like, well, is Jesus alive or not? Entrance into the Christian faith is, the, is belief in a miracle, by the way. That the Savior who hung upon the cross and was buried also rose victoriously. So I guess I'm just trying to say that an all-powerful God can do miracles. And that's not a philosophical stretch. Um, but let's just say, let's just say, let's just say this really happened. There are cases, aside from Pinocchio, there are cases where people do claim to some degree to have been swallowed by a fish, and uh, that fish was cut open. Historically, you look this up, trust me, if it's, if it's on the internet, it's true, okay? And just while you're trying to figure out who to vote for, you know, just like Google, that's how we do it, sadly, right? But it's like just look up this, these stories. And this is, there's cases where this happened. Usually they come out kind of bleached white from all the stomach acids, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I, here's a question. Is it possible for God? Now, here's what I, I get at. God, it says, it says he prepared a fish. The word there is like, it's not just that God is like, Hey, you fish, go. It's like God is involved in the preparation of this fish. Um, here's a question. Can God create a vessel to house an individual underwater for three days? Okay. That's a submarine. Okay. If man can do it, God can do it. Okay? All right? If, God, if man can do it, God can do it. Um, now, here's back to... That was fun. Back to the story, okay? Regardless of how this miracle, whether naturally or supernaturally, sometimes God does the miraculous in natural ways, okay? But regardless of, of what's going on, remember, God is still trying to get Jonah's attention. Okay, remember, now is Jonah's, Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Remember that Jonah's never read the story of Jonah before. Okay? 
He's not like, okay, yeah, this is the part where I'm in here for three days. Okay, it's, it's like 104 degrees in here. You know, they say the humidity is what gets you. Um, do you, you know what I mean? Like, it's, Jonah's never been in this, he's never, re- so he's still at a place where it's like, the, the idea here is Jonah's in a, in a place of death. He calls it Sheol. He, he, he assumes he's in hell. That's how bad it is. That's how uh, we could all get there in life, by the way, especially without God, where it's hell on earth. And we've just put ourselves, we walked away from God, and we just go down, 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 down. And now we're in this dark place. And it's in this moment that the grace of God just breaks in to Jonah's life. And God gets his attention. Chapter 2 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your billows and your waves passed over me. He's quoting from the Psalms here, tying it into his life. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So he's still in the fish, but he's believing that God's going to deliver him. That's pretty cool. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you in your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Jonah's idol was his own will over God's. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. God's grace just breaks in. I think this is really interesting. What is the thing that actually gets through to Jonah? Jonah starts to probably, notice this, day three, he's in this fish. Talk about stubborn. You ever been there with God? You're like, I've been in this fish two days and I'm still not submitting. I'm not tapping out. But three days in, this is really interesting. The implanted word of God starts to come to his memory. Salvation is of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's God's word that actually brings Jonah back to life, that actually calls him to be awakened. It wasn't the storm. It wasn't the suicidal cannonball. It wasn't even the fish. It was God's word that starts to transform him. And then we see the next thing that grace does, grace preserves our life. Grace gets our attention. Hey, the direction you're going in, it's detrimental to you. And notice also we see in Jonah, it's detrimental to the people around you. Like when you run from God, it doesn't just affect you, it affects people in your boat. It affects your family. It's a downward spiral. And grace, the grace of God is in Jonah's life, same in our life. It's this, it's this attention-grabbing realization of what my sin, what my life apart from God looks like. And it's God's word that informs that. And Jonah begins to repent and say, God, I'm, I'm tired of doing it my way. And then we see the miraculous grace of God in verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out. Yummy onto dry land. Wow. God preserves. This is what grace does. Grace preserves our lives. Grace. If it wasn't for grace. If it wasn't for grace, um, I'm not trying to like have some false humility and like boast as if I was some like G-unit gangster or anything, but I was on a trajectory in my teenage years that led to the end of a lot of my friends' lives. And I know in my life, if it wasn't for God's grace to get my attention, and if it wasn't for God's grace in doing so to preserve my life, you know that God wants to preserve your life? You know that God has a plan for your life? You know that God has your eternal life in mind? God cares. He's the author of life. God preserves Jonah's life. I love how he does it. He talks to the fish. That's awesome, okay? Um, by the way, I talk to my animals. Like, you do it too, all right? You're like, you talk to Cooper and whoever you have at home, okay? Little Fido, all right? Your little Chihuahua. You talk to them, okay? But here, God's talking to the God tells the whale, spit him out. Now, I love that. In my mind, I can't help. It's almost Christmas. I think of 
buddy, talking to Mr. Norwal a little bit. That's in there. Bye, buddy. Okay? But God talks to the fish. The fish, God preserving Jonah's life, it spits him out on dry land. Many commentators believe that Jonah has been spit out right back at the dock in Joppa. It's likely. He's right back to where he started. Now, ready? We're still, we're still talking about grace. This is amazing. Oh, I got to say this. This is important. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, he says that this is a picture of his death and resurrection. Isn't this cool? In Matthew 12, Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this, in Jonah, Jesus actually teaches us, when God preserves his life, it's a picture of death and resurrection. Okay? Jonah literally thought he was dead, and he came back to life. Jesus says, that's a picture of me. I'm going to lay down my life. And just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I'll be in the heart of the earth. And then three days later, I'm going to come back to life, uh, victoriously conquering death, so that every person who hears this good news, they don't have to stay in the belly of the whale. Yeah, amen. Every person, every person who's run from God, they can pass from death to life. They don't have to live in that way, but grace can preserve their life, okay? Uh, also, we see this. Write this down. Grace restores our purpose. This is so beautifully displayed in Jonah's life. Grace restores our purpose. Grace gets our attention. God's like, hey, I have more for you, and the, the way that you're going, it's going to ruin things. It's going to cost you. It's going it's to affect things around you. It's going to blind you. How, how, how long are you going to kick against what God's doing? And then the grace of God opens our eyes to see that. Grace also preserves our lives. Just as Jesus was dead and is brought back to a life, we too, the Bible says, we have that same resurrection power available to us. God wants to preserve our life here and eternally. He wants to give us eternal life, save us from eternal death. And then lastly, grace restores our purpose. This is what we see with Jonah. Uh, it says, that you, if you haven't read this, even if you have, <laughs> check us out. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord this is so cool, came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. What, what beautiful restoration. This is grace, by the way. Okay. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I, from what I know about God, I believe that if Jonah continued to run, God would continue to pursue I mean, the story goes as long as Jonah rebels, right? So there could have been, who knows, there could have been a chapter 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the third time. You ever felt like that? It's like, I'm in the triple, quadruple digits over here. Like, you know, God coming back and back and patient to, to pursue me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is grace. Uh, I want you to notice that God doesn't put Jonah on a probationary period. Where now he needs to spend three weeks and think about what he's done. And feel extra, I know you repented, but you need to really feel bad about it. You need to really hate yourself and beat yourself up. And just beat yourself down into the ground in sin, in, in guilt and regret. God says, okay, anyway, where were we? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'm not going to lay upon you more exhaustion. Come to me. What beautiful display of grace. God puts Jonah back on his feet. And he's like, okay, where were we? Let's forget the things which are behind. Let's press forward to the things that are ahead. There's a city I want to reach. And just as I set up a, a whale, a fish, come on, Andrew, a fish to get your, your attention, I'm going to send you to get Nineveh's attention. Because God always, you know, he throws back out that which he catches. Now I'm going to use you to go catch more. I'm going to use you to go reach more. So Jonah, this time around, as he has been restored in the grace of God, he goes out and he goes this time and he fulfills what God calls him to do. He's like, after all that, I've been to hell and back. I think it's a Leonardo DiCaprio revenant reference. I've already died. I'm not afraid to die anymore. You know, It's like, I've already been to hell and back. What, what's the worst that's going to happen to me? Verse 2, God commands him to go. Verse 3, Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in its extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out, here's a sermon, yet 40 days, it's often in Scripture a number of judgment, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. So now Jonah's, man, he's, he's, he's in the spot. He's on site. 
Right? He's in Nineveh. He's preaching. He's talking about their coming judgment. He's crying out against their wickedness. He's like, you guys got 40 days. Start the clock. You're going to be overthrown. God has seen your wickedness. Jonah preaches. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh, this is beautiful, believed God. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So now the people are responding to the message in humility and repentance. They're saying, okay. So Jonah's now preaching this message, and they're, they're turning to God. And the word came to the king. He arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And, he, and now he calls for like a public repentance thing. He calls for a public fast. So now here's what you have. You have this entire nation is turning to the Lord. That's what God does. He uses people. He changes their lives. And he goes, now go change the world. And you have here now potentially a million people. We're talking potentially the greatest revival in history right now which I believe that can still happen in our nation. A million people turning to the Lord. Notice, it's interesting, the leaders are the ones that pioneer it. And he commands that everyone turns to the Lord God. And verse 9 says, Who can tell if God will relent and turn, turn away from his fierce wrath and anger so that we do not perish? I think the most important characteristic of their repentance is verse 5. It says that they believed God. That's just it right there, right? right. Oh, I believe in God. Okay, but do you believe God? I believe there's a God. Do you believe what he said about you, about your life, about where sin leads you apart from him? By the way, I'm so glad. This sounds hard, but it's actually what great news that that is what we're called to in salvation. Agree with what God has said. Stop fighting him. Agree with him about what your sin is. Agree with him about where your sin leads. Agree with him about his salvation being your hope. Just believe him. It's not enough to believe in God. James says even the demons believe and tremble. At least they tremble, right? But believe what God has said. This is what revival is. The spirit of God breaks out like a wildfire when you get a bunch of people who actually believe what God says. And they start living like God is who he is, and he said what he said. The downfall of man from the very beginning was doubting what God has said. And the fuel of the church and the seed of revival is people who believe God. I believe you, God. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that I am who you say I am. I believe that my sin has produced what you say it's produced. I believe you, and it leads to repentance. I'm going to come to you. And here it is, ready? This amazing God of grace that pursues Jonah. Now, verse 10 says that when God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, they turned from their sin, and now they're turning to the Lord. It says God relented from the disaster that he said that he would bring upon them, and he didn't do it. Amazing grace. This is like a Billy Graham crusade, guys. It's amazing. But it's Jonah. Guy's got missing hair, bleached, messed up, limping his way through the town. You guys are going to go to hell if you don't repent. It's a sermon. It's not like lights and Jesus. You know, it's not like this cool. It's just like the truth of God through a broken man, revival. And people come to God. They, they turn and they come to God. And God says, okay, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to pour out grace on you. This is who God is. A lot of us, we're afraid to come to God as we truly are because we're not sure how he really feels about us. We're not sure, what he's re- is he really going to embrace me like the prodigal son, like the prodigal um, was embraced by their father? I thought, or is he going to meet me like a judge, an executioner? God loves you. And whether it's Jonah or Nineveh, what we see is that when he gets our attention and we turn to him, he welcomes us into his arms. He forgives. He loves us. So, so Jonah, I'm a preacher like Jonah. There's some things I can relate to with him. Uh, there's some things I can't. Here it is. Verse, chapter 4 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. Like my greatest, like the bullseye of my life. 
okay, is to be used by God to lead people to follow him. I cannot imagine preaching a sermon, having one million people respond to it, and then getting mad about it. Like, oh, it worked. That's him. He has a pity party. This book ends really weird, by the way. Check it out. So You thought I was about a whale. Isn't that funny? Verse 2. It's not Pinocchio. Verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Ah, Lord. Not a good way to start a prayer, by the way. Kind of that prideful posture. Like, let's, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven is the way to start. Not, Ah, Lord. So he comes to God like, God, I'm here to counsel you. He says, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? This is why I fled. I fled previously, from, um, he says, for Tarshish, because I know that you're gracious. I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in love and kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah goes, the reason why I ran in the first place from preaching to these wicked people is because I knew that you're gracious and that you would forgive them. And I didn't want to see you love my enemy. I didn't want to see you reach my enemy. My priorities were more important than the kingdom's priorities. My purposes took precedence over what you wanted to do in the world. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to live, for, to die than to live and see these people forgiven. Imagine that. Imagine having that much prejudice in your heart. That you'd rather die, maybe it's not so hard to imagine, you'd rather die than see God love someone. Then the Lord said, I love this question. This is, I feel like, I feel like my wife asked me this a lot. Is it right for you to be angry? You ever had someone ask you that? It's like, yeah, it's right. Well, maybe not as much as I am, right? You ever had to have someone ask you that? It's like, and here's Jonah. God says, should you be angry? Is it right? I'm not doubting that you're angry, but is it righteous? Is it true? Is it pure? Now, notice that there's no response from Jonah. So Jonah went out of the city. He sat on the east side of the city. He made himself a shelter. He starts to sulk, and he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord, God is still gracious to Jonah, prepares a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. We all, we're Floridians. We know what this is like. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepares a storm. He prepares a fish. He prepares a plant. Now God prepares a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death on himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? The plant? Yeah, the plant that you just were grateful for that I took away from you? He said, Yeah, it's right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, Notice this. This is where we close. You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Um, Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? You're having compassion on a plant that you haven't labored for. What about my people? What about my creation that I have labored for? Should I not have compassion on them, that great city, in which he even talks about the little, the little ones in the city, there are more than 120,000 persons, little children, that God cares for, who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. The end. Like, the, by the way, the Old Testament ends like this a lot because it's like, we need more. Is, is there Jesus? He's, okay, he's a, okay, he's a part of this. Okay, good. That's why you have a whole new covenant which fulfills so much of this. But look at where this story ends. I, I told you, that the way I wanted to do this today is to close our service today with our major message. Here's the major message of Jonah. The major message of Jonah is the inclusive nature of God's loving grace. The inclusive nature of God's loving grace. Now, 
initially, a lot of you guys are like, whoa, I don't like that word inclusive. Now, let me, let me explain. Uh, first and foremost, um, the, the entrance to salvation is exclusive. Scripture teaches in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name given under heaven and earth by which man can be saved. Uh, uh, Nineveh didn't have options of salvation. God was their only hope, exclusively. The mariners on the boat with Jonah, no matter what they tried to put their hope in to be rescued, their hope was still the same. It was the God of Jonah. Today, we might try to put our trust in resolving our problems of life and, and trying to fix our sin on our own, but the hope is still the same. The hope is the same for you. The hope is the same for me. We're all saved by the same blood. It's Jesus, the only name given under heaven and earth by which man could be saved. This Jesus, he hung upon a cross, took upon himself your and my sin, so that you and I, like Jonah and Nineveh, could turn to God and be those who are recipients of his amazing grace. And the story of Jonah teaches us that that grace is exclusive in its entrance, but it is inclusive in its invitation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever, whether you're a Jew or a Ninevite, whether you're, whether you're Jonah or a Boca Ratonian or an American, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're black or white, whosoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. This inclusive gospel of love was at odds with Jonah's heart. And the question that the book of Jonah should lead us to evaluate as we close, I'll invite the band to come up to close us out. It's this question. God, who am I excluding that you have included? Who am I excluding that you have included? You look at Jonah, and here's the question. How could someone who is such an undeserving recipient of amazing saving grace, how could someone still feel superior to someone else? As if he deserved it and they didn't. Jesus says things like this. He says, uh, you've heard it said, love your neighbor hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says this, he says, love your enemy. He goes on to tell a parable about this, about a Samaritan and a Jew, cultural enemies. And, and it's a whole lesson about how two representatives of two separate parties, two separate nations, two separate cultures, despite how culture had made them enemies, from God's perspective, they were neighbors. See, the issue with loving your, net, your enemy is that you don't see your enemy as your neighbor. They're, they're, they are your neighbor. They're in the neighborhood of humanity within which we are all in desperate need of God's grace, the inclusive grace of God. Here's the big idea. God's grace is so inclusive that it was wide enough to save you. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad that God's grace is wide enough to reach you? Because I, I don't know about you, I got my own reasons why I wouldn't qualify. Anybody else? So who have we disqualified? How have we made our own agendas more important than the love of God through us? Okay, which of your neighbors don't support the same politician that you do? Are you more like God in his grace? Or are you more like Jonah in his judgment? How can you and I be those that are salt and light? That's the call here. How can we be those that so represent this God of grace that we don't just sing about it, but we so believe in a God whose grace was inclusive enough to reach us that we display that to those around us that we would tend to cast off because they don't meet the requirements of God's love. And the good news of the gospel is that we were not saved by our own righteousness. I'll close with this verse. Uh, where's the band at? What's up, guys? You out here? You out here? It's like it's quiet back there. Yo, give it up for Ben and the band. We love them. Why don't you stand with me as we worship here? Lee, you want to hit those lights, bud? Uh, I want us to 
have a moment where we can process the truth of the gospel here together as we close, as we go out. And Titus chapter 3 reminds us of this good news. It says this, that when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, it was not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it was according to his mercy that he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, so where are you right now in relationship to the mercy and grace of God? And how are you running from it? And what does it look like right now for you to tap out? Say, God, it's so much better your way. It's so much better being a recipient of your grace than being exhausted running from you. May your inclusive grace reach me so that I can be used by you to reach others. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.